The Lord be with you. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us insight into where Matthew is leading us so that we can follow him and you into the good news for the world. Amen. Okay, so last time we were supposed to cover these eight chapters of Matthew, and I think we made it through two. Um, so we can go faster or slower, as it were, but I have us sort of in Matthew chapter 7, where we first started uh, by talking about judging others, right? Judging others. And I think what we'd left off with, without, without you know, doing you terrible injustice of, of repetition, is that a lot of times we hear this statement, do not judge, and of course, we're asked to make judgments all the time, particularly moral judgments, right and wrong, good and better. Uh, but of course, I think the biblical injunction is to not judge persons as either good or bad or valuable or worthless. And I think, honestly, that's something I feel like we struggle with as much now as ever. You know, um, I don't know about you, but Facebook, I never really read it a lot, but I try to read it even less now because of the vitriol that has come out politically and otherwise, um, frankly, not uplifting, you know, and not helpful. I, I suppose people need a place to grouse and complain, but I'm not sure that a public place is really serving to anybody. So I, 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 the reason I mention all this is because I think we, we have this really strange tendency increasingly, especially with politics, to dismiss people and parties wholesale instead of weighing merits of ideas. And, um, and it's wrong. I just, it's wrong. There, there you have it. It's wrong. And I'm pretty sure this is what Jesus has in mind. I'm pretty sure. And the other thing we talked about last time that, that Brene Brown says is the number one differentiator between whether or not people have demonstrably or experientially, experientially joyful lives is whether or not they believe that other people are trying to do the best they can with what they have. And I think probably one of the difficult things with judgment is that we often think that people are trying to do the worst they can with what they have, right? And this is really difficult. There's a tension here, right? I mean, I think because we all know family members or friends that have inflicted pain upon family over and over again, and how can they not know? How can they not know what they're doing? Um, so I think it's a pretty difficult command Jesus gives us here, or at least attention to hold on to in the middle of situations like that. Uh, there's no really solution other than, um, I guess we have to be aware of our tendency to flatten people in the middle of behaviors we don't like. There was another sermon for you today. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't particularly that great, was it? Um, you know, there's a, a Jay Leno episode where he goes around quoting, uh, he starts a quote and he asks people to finish the quote. Have you been familiar with this before? He's not on late night TV anymore. I don't, is he on TV anymore? He, he used to go out and you would, would watch this because now, you know, it, these surveys are saying that people are illiterate both to Shakespeare and the Bible, right? And so one of them was, do not throw your pearls before, and people had to complete the sentence. And it was amazing what they would say, you know, don't throw your pearls before thieves, don't throw your pearls before tanks or giraffes. I mean, who knows how they thought that was a quote, right? Um, and, and, and of course, um, it starts out with don't give what's holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before swine, as we know, because they'll trample them underfoot and turn and maul you, says the quote. And, um, you know, I think it's what is strange is that that injunction Jesus gives comes right on the heels about judging people and judging people carefully. And I just want to back into this by telling you that in order to become a priest in the Diocese of San Diego, you have to take something called the General Ordination Exam, which is like the clergy bar, right? It's a little less strenuous than it used to be. It used to be meticulously graded and scored, and your numeric score was indicative of, of frankly, when you could expect to be ordained, and whether or not you might have a future in a diocese other than your home one. They've changed it now. It's pass-fail, okay? But it is 
uh, 21 pages of essay, there's a, a character limit to the exam for each of the seven questions, it's 21 pages of writing, and you do that over about two and a half days or three days. I can't quite remember. Well, one of my questions on the general ordination exam, and, and you'll be happy to know I passed. <laughs> I, I wrote 21 pages, and I got a sentence back from the graders. It was great. Just like met our standards. Oh, thank you. That was really helpful exercise, right? So, so one of the questions, though, actually, was about um, there's a local group of Muslims in your town. And I mean, I think this question would be as divisive now as it was whatever when I took the thing four years ago. Um, there's a group of Muslims in your town, and the mosque has to close, and they've asked you as rector if they can use your building to have their Juma on Fridays, right? And you, of course, as rector, are the canonical authority to the property, and what's your decision, and, and how do you want to involve other people? Thank you, okay? I shared this question with my people in Coronado, you know, and they said, well, of course, we'd be really happy for people to use the parish hall for the Juma. You know, we, we'd give them the parish hall, but we wouldn't want them in the sanctuary because that would profane the reserved sacrament. I think they had this passage in mind. I suppose that my question is, how would that possibly profane the, the reserved sacrament? And maybe the better question is, can the reserved sacrament be profaned? Is God's holiness ever at stake with what we do? I mean, this is sort of a good thinking I think Jesus is inviting us to, right? I mean, when I asked a, a, a rabbi nearby if he would come and lead the Passover Seder here at St. Thomas, um, and, and I told him, by the way, we're not doing a Christian one. We'd like to do the Jewish one. Thank you very much. That's all we would do. We wouldn't talk about Jesus at all. We would just do the Seder meal. He was incensed at me. Um, he said, that would be terrible for me to do. And what would you do, he said to me, if a group of Muslims asked you to come over and celebrate the Eucharist in their mosque? Well, I didn't think he was really happy when I said, well, I'd probably ask why they wanted to do it, so I did it the way they wanted. <laughs> I just, I think this is this really interesting piece, right? I had a friend in San Diego, there was a priest, and um, she was vitriolically upset that at an interfaith gathering they'd offered the Eucharist, particularly because it was a group of Christians and a group of Hindus, and she was really upset that, she, that the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ was being offered to Hindus that didn't believe that stuff. And what I want to tell you about all this is that these tensions are real, and that we often get caught in this idea of what's holy not being profaned, right? But I, th I, I think actually when Jesus says this business, don't throw pearls to swine, I think he's actually asking us to consider the category completely. Are there people who are just unclean swine? Are there? Or are there not? And is God best served by us offering the best and the holiest of what we have to those we are sure are least deserving or to the ones we believe are most deserving? This is a really good question for us to consider. Right? Yes, sir. Yes. So, that certain period is the rest of your life, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, so the question, you know, I have kind of raised the joke, you know, because I'm not a Catholic church and a priest or somebody tells me, you know, that you know, I tell him I, I, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian, but I'm a Yes. I think that you make a difference because actually, you know, as a, a, you know, something that the communion is just Holy Spirit or 
Great question. So Joe's saying, you know, in, in a number of Roman parishes, communion can be not denied to you. For example, if you're not a Roman, if you're not a baptized Roman, if you're not a confirmed Roman, if you've been divorced. And, and Joe said, well, you could, you could be denied the Eucharist for a period of years if you're divorced. And that's where I said the period of years being your natural life, right? Because that's divorce in the Catholic Church, of course, is a mortal sin. Uh, and there's nothing you can do about that one, right? Um, but, you know, it's not only in the, in the Roman church that this happens. There are Episcopal churches, and I've been members of them, where before the communion they say, baptized Christians of all denominations are welcome at the Lord's table, right? Or I've been at churches where they say, Christians of all denominations are welcome at the Lord's table. You understand implicitly who's being excluded, Right? It's not just us. You can go to Lutheran churches or Presbyterian churches where they'll say they're having a closed communion. That is, if the minister doesn't know you and your faith credentials, they won't give you the stuff. Um, the prayer book allows me to withhold communion from any known sinner in the place. So I can excommunicate you as your rector for as long as I see fit, according to the prayer book. But I think then you have to start wondering. So on the one hand, in favor of their argument, they believe, and this is biblical, that if you eat or drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. This comes from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Right? Of course, what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians is people eating all the food before everybody came so that many who came had none. That's an unworthy manner, is that you eat all of it. Actually, a closer study of that idea makes me think that all of the other examples are precisely wrong, that they're error on the wrong side. And Paul's goal is to distribute it among as many people as possible, as equitably as possible. So I think this is something that we have to consider. If you're a notorious sinner, aren't you precisely more in need of the body and blood of Jesus than someone who isn't? Yeah, deliver us from the presumption of coming to this table for solace only and not for strength. <laughs> yeah. So I just think this is important to consider. You know, and this is going to sound really funny, but on Maundy Thursday in San Diego, uh, the diocesan center was downtown and actually had a very big homeless ministry. And the thing they did that I sort of copied and pasted here is, is they, they washed the feet of homeless clients and they gave them a new pair of shoes that fit them. And we did that last year here. And I just think it's really cool to be creative with meeting people's needs, right? And, and, and you did that with about 55 pairs of shoes, and we're going to try to do it again um, in partner with a couple other people because now we're on the hook for 200 pairs. But, uh, but uh, and that's okay. But we're going to have help. Well, Gloria Day, I think, is going to help us out. So, so um, the interesting thing was the people who are washing the feet of the homeless people were bishops. The Anglican, uh, the, the, our bishop, the Episcopal Bishop, Jim Mathis, and and then there would be like a Roman bishop, and it might have been a Lutheran bishop, I think, who had the unfortunate, uh, un un unfortunate outcome of having the last name Fink. Um, <laughs> that used to be a bad word, I think. So um, anyway, he was a nice guy, Murray was. Anyway, they, they, they would wear their cassocks, which would be purple and, and possibly black. You know, that's, that's the thing... Not the alb. The alb is the white underwear. This would be like black or purple, right? And, and they would wash clients' feet. And so odd to me, I'm sure there was a sanitary reason they were wearing latex gloves. I, I, um, I worry about the imagery of that. You know, I need to wear gloves to wash your feet. Um, really worry about that. It occurred to me that the best use of the vestments of the bishop, that brocade and that hat, would be drying their feet in the vestments. Of course, that would ruin them, and they're thousands of dollars. Um, but it occurs to me that's exactly how you should use pearls with swine. You should use the pearls with the swine. 
I don't know. That's a funny image in my head. And I, and I actually think sometimes when we read Jesus at face value, we might actually miss the paradox he's trying to introduce us to. I really belabored that point. But I think it becomes really, really, really important when we think about our use of resources and our invitation into worship, you know, and, and, and who can be excluded. You can read, unfortunately, that a number of priests have asked people who are on the autism spectrum not to attend services because their tics or their movement in the back of the church distracts them from giving their fantastic sermons. What a shame. What a shame. Wouldn't the sermon be better preached by including people who have nowhere else to go? And what if that was the sermon each week? <laughs> I'm really distracted because I'm focusing on making a place for people who have nowhere else to go. Amen. That would be an all right sermon. <laughs> I mean, I think it would preach week after week. I'm pretty sure that's what it's like if you go to Lord of the Streets in Houston, just to let you know. Pretty sure sermons get interrupted quite a bit. I really belabor that point, sorry. But I think it's important to flesh out these very short passages that, you know, again, at face value, we have no problem with them, but maybe the reason Jesus said them in the first place is so that we would have a problem with them. And probably what we have to remember, and I, I told you this way back whenever, is that what the gospel writers have done is that they've heard these stories that are like this, self-contained little stories. I mean, one way to hear it is that little phrase could be your meditation for the day. Okay? And you could think about it for a long time. And then to put another one of these stories right next to each other with no transition is often jarring for us. Uh, and that's because it either didn't occur to the gospel writer that a transition was needed, right? As it might seem for us. And again, what's happening is they remember Jesus saying these very short, pithy phrases. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Thomas, you, you know, that's the famous one, the, the Gnostic one, um, which is much later than our other four. All it is are little pithy phrases, chock-a-block with no narrative whatsoever. I mean, at least these ones have narrative, you know? And these gospel writers often have put some frames, and here's the frame that, that Matthew's put on these that we're looking at right now. He's called this the Sermon on the Mount, which means really, here's what he's called this, the fulfillment of the Jewish law that was given to Moses on top of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, whichever word you prefer. And if you go read that Jewish law, the one that was revealed to Moses on top of Mount Horeb, it's chock-a-block pithy phrases. <laughs> it's not organized in a way that's intuitively obvious to us. So I want to suggest to you that the apparent disorganization is actually mirroring what's happening in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Chock-a-block phrases. <laughs> Although, Underneath this, consider that we've just heard about the Beatitudes, the salt and the light, and then we just heard about what kind of judgment we should exercise, and now we've got pearls and swine, and then so in some ways, right, there is a scarlet thread that stitches these together if we stop and think about it. And, and if we were open to listening to how Matthew's composed it, the thread becomes more and more obvious to us if we think there must be a reason he's put this next to this, what is it? Um, the previous one has to be relevant to this one. Is that, does that make sense? Or sometimes less carefully. It's hard to say. I mean, really, you know, back when I was learning Hebrew, there were two ways to do it. One was to take five verses and parse every single word as to tense, an adjective ending, and, and all that business, right? And another way I had to do it was the Jewish way, which was read five chapters. 
Because when you spend time on every word, sometimes you lose the cadence of the sentence, right? So certainly there's room for both. This is like saying the basal technique and phonics, right? And you need both. And sometimes we get too basal with our approach, you know? Or sometimes we get too phonetical and we try to parse every word. That's my tendency, is to parse too much. <laughs> which I'm already doing. Look at that, and I've, I've covered six verses in, in 20 minutes, okay. The golden rule, you know this isn't new, right? The golden rule is quite, quite old, um, but, but here it comes again, right? I mean, this is what's interesting. So is the golden rule separate from this, or is it a reiteration? In everything you do, in everything, do to others as you would have them do unto you. Would you want people calling you swine and denying you their pearls? Or would you want them giving the best of what they have because you're worth it? I mean, it's a great follow-up, isn't it? You know? I, I did skip this business. Ask and it will be given. Knock. Everyone who knocks, seeks, and all that business. There's this thing that I've really struggled at for a long time. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for bread, will give them a stone? Um, I often am tempted to give my child stones, by the way. Or if your child asks for a fish, we'll give them a snake. Yes, I am tempted to do that. Just saying. Okay, all right. This is a great Robert Frost poem, isn't it? Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. Two roads diverge into a yellow wood, and I took the one less traveled by. He really was just writing about two roads. I don't think he was writing about life at all. Um, Okay, uh, yeah, all right. Um, tree and its fruit. We intuitively know this, right? I mean, this is actually the number one criticism with the church, according to um, statistical groups. The reason people in America hate the church, number one, is because it's hypocritical. Actually, in 19... Um, no, let's see, what year was it? In 2005, the number one reason was that the church was homophobic. The number two reason was the church was hypocritical. Of course, those are basically the same thing, you know. Not that the church had a stand against homosexuality, but that it was homophobic. You, you know the difference between those terms, right? That was the biggest problem, because, number two, people view that as hypocritical, and sort of, you know, that there are smooth talkers, usually they're called priests, and when you examine their life, wowee, not a lot of good fruit to be found. Um, and here's the injunction, right? Examine the fruit of the tree. Examine the fruit of the tree. Of course, what we all know, and I think this is the nice thing, is that there's no such thing as a tree that only bears good fruit. And let's just be honest about that. I think that's helpful. Um, what's interesting about this passage, the, 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 this piece that the, the part that doesn't bear good fruit is thrown into the fire, is um, I had this good lesson in California where there was a well-established orange tree in front of my home, and um, it bore quite a bit of oranges. I mean, it was really, really productive. And every two or three years, it would send out these bizarre-looking branches that had thorns on them. Thorns on an orange tree, you ever heard of that? Yeah, you just prune them and you, and you get rid of them. <laughs> if you don't, they'll overrun the whole tree. And the pruning is actually for the sake of the tree and the fruit. Because actually, if you don't prune those thorns, not only will they overrun the tree, they'll eventually kill the tree. So when we hear about Jesus saying things like pruning and throwing in the fire, again, our temptation is to hear that as whole human beings, when instead, in an agricultural society, that's about branches that aren't serving the tree. And you prune them for the sake of the tree, not to punish the tree. No one punishes trees. You bad apple tree! You better give me Fuji's instead of those pink ladies, or I won't fertilize you! Think how unnatural that is, and that's what we've, that's what we've done with this scripture, was we've made it unnatural by applying it wholesale to people, right? I know people who have more thorns than fruit, and you do too. I know people who might have a, only thorns, but the stump is good. <laughs> the stump is good, you know, and can be productive. Maybe even... It takes grafting, which is cutting the whole tree off and putting something new. You know, there's people where that might be true, but the stump is good, you see. 
My dad was a botanist. I spent a lot of time doing that stuff. Um, this is a really interesting one here concerning self-deception. And then see, Polly, again, I want you to hear that all of these little things that seem isolated actually are really probably about the same thing. This is a tough teaching. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out unclean spirits in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. And normally we think people who can work miracles in God's name must be the ones who know God the most, right? And what's the difference? Going back to the chapter, it's what we consider sacred and what we consider profane. It's the way we treat other people and the way we categorize other people. Is Jesus saying, if you don't love others, I won't love you? Well, I hope not, because then he'd be just like we are. I like to think Jesus and God are bigger and better than we are, you know? Um, Again, I think what he's trying to say is, why don't you exercise judgment more in the way you believe I'm going to do it? I think. You know this business about the wise man built his house upon the rock. It's a great song for children, right? What's funny is we know that, and yet how many places in our own lives are we fully aware of that our foundation is in fact built on sand? You can talk to any alcoholic who knows they're an alcoholic, and they know that's a foundation based on sand, but they don't feel empowered enough to change it by and large, right? I mean, that's the problem with the disease. And alcoholics can be very high-functioning and have wonderful parts of their lives, right? There's just that thorny bush, the alcohol disease, right? That needs pruning and remediation, right? What's interesting, right, is that coming back to the log and the eye on the speck, just coming full circle, right, it's not as if we have built our homes entirely on solid rock. And when we see somebody who's shifting, we're really quick to say, shifting sand, and again, it just, you, you see, I think in some ways this is the stitching that Matthew's doing, right? You sort of hear this thread weaving through to be careful about how you judge as if you were on bedrock only, right? Be careful about who you say is on shifting sand because the truth is we all are. And how is it that we go about fixing our foundation? Mm-hmm. And that we're going to find in the rest of the book. But there's no easy answer. It's not like you just say, well, just stop drinking, everything will be fine, right? Because, because drinking was the symptom of the disease. It wasn't the disease. I'm, I'm doing a lot of preaching. Is that weird? <laughs> Is this helpful at all? I mean, to, to go through this so slowly? Okay. All right. Well, you know, there's this great thing that happens in chapter 8. Look, I made it through one chapter. This is great. The leper comes up to Jesus. See, he's just given the whole, the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's just given them the fulfillment of the Mosaic Law. That was it. We just finished it. And he says, Lord, if you choose, make me clean. Isn't this great? And Jesus says, I do choose. Be clean. What an interesting dialogue. The problem is when we have these words, we have no idea of the tone or the facial expression, you know? Did Jesus think he was just done? He'd just done. You know, he'd done his deed for the day, right? And was just walking, and somebody on the side, if you choose, I just try to imagine that scene, you know? Uh, there's 5,000 ways to hear that dialogue, you know? Well, I do choose. <laughs> okay, I, I guess I will. <laughs> and in some ways, you see, that's the fulfillment of the whole Sermon on the Mount to us. If we choose, we can make other people clean. Not necessarily heal the disease. You, you know what I mean? We can't always take care of their leprosy or AIDS or breast cancer, or whatever they have, but we can treat people who are otherwise considered unclean as though they were if we choose to. And see, in some ways, you start to look at the narrative frame, Polly, and that's not disjointed. That actually <laughs> just connects with everything we just heard, or might. 
there's a lot of debate about whether or not we see people as unclean in the biblical sense. But again, I just, I just want to let you know, we, we definitely do, right? We definitely do still see people as unclean. The clearest, again, was in the 80s when, when AIDS was new, and you don't touch a water fountain or a toilet seat because it's dirty, gross. You know, Even after we learned you couldn't get the disease that way, you still didn't touch that stuff lightly. You know, There's people who are, I mean, you're probably better people than I am, but I'm aware of people in my own life who, who can have dirty hands, and I look at their hands, and I consider them dirtier than other people who have the same quantity. And sometimes we judge the quality of the dirt as dirtier. You probably don't do that. I can just tell you, I know full well I do that. And I think Jesus is saying, if you're willing, you can make those hands clean. Comes back to the question, can dirty hands defile you? <laughs> all right, I'm not asking you any questions. Maybe this isn't, uh, all right, I'm not going to worry about it. Okay, you told me not to be worried. We get to meet the centurion, right? Now, just remember, this is a gospel written to Jewish people, and here's a centurion who's most likely a Gentile. I mean, Jews could hold military positions. Centurion would be the... That would be like being a chief master sergeant in today's military. If you're, if you're an enlisted person, this is the highest rank you can achieve, right? So if you wanted to be a first or second lieutenant or a captain or a major or a commander in the Navy right, or an admiral or a general, you had to be from the gentry, right? You would start out as a lieutenant, and we sort of, familiar with military, this is, makes sense? You know that the lowest paid officer makes more than the highest paid enlisted. This is today, again, the modern military is still like that. This is sort of how this works back then, too, you know? So the centurion is somebody who has real power on a base, you know, if you've been on a base, you know there's the colonel, then there's the chief master sergeant. And the colonel has the uniform, but when the chief master sergeant talks, people listen, right? I mean, you sort of, <laughs> sort of know this business, right? Um, this is the same thing. So this person has worked their way up, possibly from poverty, um, and, and understands this, and he's got a servant that he cares about. Now, what's a servant mean? A centurion could buy multiple servants. Jesus is going to go, and the servant sort of says, don't come under my roof. I'm not worthy because, frankly, I'm unclean. I'm a dirty Gentile, and if you come under the roof, you'll defile yourself. So stay out of my house. Just, just fix this, because I believe you can do it. And this is sort of interesting business, isn't it? Jesus says he's never seen faith like this. And I tell you, many will come from the east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Right? And this comes back to that communion business that we were talking about earlier. Again, this is how I think it ties the thread through. Whose table is it? In, in the sanctuary, whose table is it? And the question then is, who's welcome at Jesus' table? Because there's a lot at stake here, right? And this, this I think, comes, comes back to modern day, right? If it's the church's table, then not everybody's welcome, you see? But if we pretend it's God's table, then isn't it our job, in fact, to make sure people feel the proper invitation? You know? This is the problem is sometimes we look at the stuff as being ours instead of being God's. The other problem is that we rarely even call it the Lord's table, so we decided we'd call it an altar. And, 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 I, and I want you to know that the Lord's table is a much older name for the furniture than altar. Altar, we started calling it that oh, 300-some uh, years after the resurrection, and we really started calling it that in the United States. That the Church of England called it the Lord's Table in the, in the English prayer book. When we wrote the American prayer book, Samuel Seabury, first bishop of the United States, wrote, the, wrote that. He was consecrated bishop by the Scottish Church, you know, which is why on the Episcopal flag there's that X, because St. Andrew is the patron saint of Scotland. That's why the X is there. The English wouldn't make him a bishop because he was an American rebel. Scotland did, but they said, well, let me do it if you use the Scottish rite, R-I-T-E, 
the Scottish Rite was much more Catholic, Mary, Queen of Scots, right? Much more Roman Catholic in orientation and theology than the English Rite. The English Rite called it the Lord's Table, therefore, and the Scottish Rite called it an altar. The English Rite emphasized coming to the table for strength for the journey. The Scottish Rite emphasized coming to the altar for the perpetual sacrifice of Jesus. This is in our history. Okay? Some people don't like how Rite 2 has softened sacrifice language, because it has. And if you look at 1828, it's even stronger. That's where you'll find, again, certain turns of phrase that reflect not the Lord's table open for dining, but an altar on which Jesus is killed, and we remember, and we take part in that sacrifice. So, I'm one of these weird priests. You would never hear me call it an altar, because I don't think it is. I just, I don't. What do you do on altars? You kill stuff. And when you deny somebody communion, aren't you sacrificing them on an altar instead of feeding them at God's table? And who are we willing to sacrifice? Gay people, women priests, Muslims. You understand what I mean? And that's where the language starts to become really darn important. Really darn important. Altar is a convenient word, though. That's probably what we'll always call it. You know? The Lord's Table Guild isn't as great sounding as the Altar Guild. So, so I, I don't bristle against it, you know, that much. I just always call it the Lord's Table, much to people's confusion, you know. But I do think the words matter. I think they matter. Maybe for us, it's an altar if we'll sacrifice our judgment to invite everybody to it. You, you know what I mean? That's a sacrifice that costs us something like like pride and feeling like we're better than other people. That's actually expensive for me because I really like doing it. Um, so, so maybe that's the gift on the altar. That was really weird. Um, <laughs> this is a great story here in, in 8.14. Jesus goes into Peter's house and sees his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Okay, so his answer to the question, some disciples were married, right? And she's sick. And he touches her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to serve. And you just think, wow, Jesus, was it easier for you to heal the woman than to make your own sandwich? You know, I mean, couldn't you have just cooked dinner? Typical man. Um, of, of, of course, a more holistic way to read the story, you know, is that this is her job, and really her intention to provide hospitality in the home, and she can't do it. And what Jesus is doing is restoring her to her place of honor and the place where she wants to be. I mean, I think that's the most sympathetic read. <laughs> I'm related to people for whom it would be easier to heal the mother-in-law than make their own sandwich, though. I just, I do want to say that. Yeah. Okay, uh, and then Jesus seems kind of rude, right? Like, there's a guy who wants to follow him, and... And he says, let me go bury my father. And, and Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And, you know, I mean, I, mean, I would probably want to go to my father's funeral, you know, and let's join Jesus in progress. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you? Of course, we try to get Jesus off the hook and say, well, the father hasn't died yet. You know, he's just really sick. And again, my response would be, I'm going to tend to my father, you, you know, because that's just like the right thing to do, to tend to your parents when they're sick. So I, I, I think if we take Jesus literally, the consequences of that are really odd, you know. Don't care for sick people that you're related to? I, I, I don't know. Let the dead bury their own dead? Well, they don't do that because they're dead people. <laughs> Does anybody have a solution to this one?
Well, that's an idea. I think that's fair. There's this famous Martin Luther quote that says, how often not now becomes never. And that would be the spirit of that quote, right? That, that maybe today is the day to start that diet instead of tomorrow. <laughs> because tomorrow might be next week. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, I think that's fair. Of course, I've also heard in the, in, the, in the church I grew up in is, let the spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. You be one of the spiritually living people. I worry about that because that implies, right, that it implies rank and file you know, and that I'm one of those spiritually alive people and other people are spiritually dead, and golly, I sure like feeling that way. I just don't think it's healthy, you know? Like, I just, I think it takes me back to being a violator of the Sermon on the Mount, you know? I mean, that's the worry. So, so I think sometimes it's really just fine for us to sort of say, I'm not real sure on this one, right? It could mean this, that's okay, it could mean that, but I'm not totally sure on this one. And, and I think if we'll air our doubt like that, that's real helpful, you know. Yes, ma'am. Can I go back? Please. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, what is the outer darkness? Yeah, this is really tough. In general, we've decided, the church has decided quite recently, the last couple hundred years, that Jesus is talking about hell, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Right? And, of course, the word hell doesn't show up in Matthew anywhere. Um, so, weeping and gnashing of teeth is something you do as signs of mourning. So, if somebody dies, if you're Jewish to this day, you're supposed to tear your clothes. And, and some Jewish people will carry a cloth that they can conveniently tear so that they don't ruin their actual garment. The injunction was actually that you tear a very... A garment was, took a year to make. So when you tear something that valuable, I mean, really what you're reflecting is that the fabric of the community is now ruptured. Even if it was somebody you didn't care about, you're supposed to do this as a sign of how connected you are to each other, right? So people got around that by bringing rags, and they would just sort of tear that, oh, okay. It meant nothing to them. And that, again, that's, that's the opposite of the injunction. Um, but the other thing you do for a week, right, is you sit down and you have a sitting shiva where you weep and you gnash your teeth, you grind them together. My dentist tells me not to do that um, because I've done that in my sleep a lot, so now I wear a bike guard. Um, but these are just visible signs of what you would do during a time of mourning, right? And, and I think if you read it that way, what Jesus is saying is you can either come gather at God's table or not. But if you don't, your life is going to be more characterized by mourning than by feasting. I, I, I think it's always helpful, in especially these phrases that we think are so linked to eternal life, to say, what if it's not about eternal life at all? What if it's about now? Then what would it mean? Right? And the reason being is, I think Jesus is really mostly talking about life right now. Is that help, helpful, Polly, at all? But again, the, you notice that weeping and gnashing of teeth aren't signs of torment or torture or punishment. They're not. They're signs of mourning. And branches being thrown into a fire also are not punishing or torturing the tree. They're, they're burning up the branches that are hurting the tree for the sake of the tree. I mean, again, we just, I think it's helpful to dial back a lot of that, oh, it's about forever, you know. Um, may, maybe it's also about forever, I don't know, but even if it's about forever, then doesn't that sort of mean that God is able to burn off the junk we've accrued so that we can be free forever? I like that one, don't you? That's, that's nice. I've got, I've, I'm going to have a bright fire myself. Um, okay, how about Jesus in the boat? Is this one okay? This is in Matthew 8, 23, where Jesus stills the storm, right? Of course, we know Jesus is the Son of God, so him causing a minor squall to go away is really not surprising, right? But symbolically, it's important to remember that um, waves and water are symbols of chaos and evil. 
So they're on top of this water, and there's a squall, and that represents all the chaos of the world, all that could go wrong, all that could possibly be evil, and Jesus says, enough of that. And it stops. Really what Jesus is doing is recreating the world, because you know in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the earth was formless and void, and water covered the face of the deep, right? Genesis 1-1 doesn't start with God making something out of nothing. It starts with God looking at watery chaos and making order. And that's what Jesus does here in the boat. In watery chaos, he makes order. Again, this is very Jewish, that what he's doing, right? He, he's able to make order out of chaos. And, and golly, isn't that important for faith, right? That's the sort of thing we say that in all things God is able to, the work, to work to the good of those who love God. Is able? <laughs> that doesn't mean God inflicts suffering on you. It means oh, even at our worst moments, God is somehow able to be present, able to make something new out of it. Doesn't mean God will, but God is able. Many of us are still waiting <laughs> to see what that might be and if that ability will come to fruition. But I do think that's the essence of our faith. I think so. So this is why they don't understand. They're amazed because what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And of course, they're not talking about the elements. They're talking about the forces of chaos and destruction. Now, that's a big, important person, right? Someone who can control the weather is of lesser status than that, you see. So this is really a symbolic reading. And then he gets out, and this is something, isn't it? There's two demoniacs, in, in, in the other Gospels there's only one, uh, and, and they're fierce, and they live in the tombs, which is code speak for these people. They're living a life of death. I mean, they're, li they're living in a dead place, Right? And, they, and really, no one can come that way because they're, well, they're fierce. Those dead people are really fierce in converting you to the death that they live into. I know people like that. Don't you? Sometimes I'm one of those people. Um, and then they say, what are you come to do with this? Are you here to torment us before the time? And see, they're really scared Jesus is going to torment them. I was as a little boy, too. Of course, he's not interested in that. Then there's a herd of swine... And the demons say, if you cast us out, let us go into the swine. And Jesus said, well, go ahead. And, and they do, and they run down the bank, and they perish in the water. And um, they told her the whole story about what happened to the demoniacs. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their neighborhood. <laughs> Isn't that a great word? They begged him to leave their neighborhood. Get out of Nassau Bay doing stuff like that. Okay, um, <clears throat> If you read this literally, I just am not only scratching my head, it's, it's appalling. I mean, this, the pigs didn't do anything wrong. Why would you kill those pigs? But if you read it figuratively, and I mean, you're really talking about above the surface here, of course, swine are impure, nasty things, right? And where do the spirits that inflict nastiness on people go? They go to be in unnasty vessels. I mean, nasty vessels, and of course, what happens is they're drowned in their own chaos. Uh, I think, if I can condense that, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If it gets literal again, I just don't understand the poor pigs. I mean, they didn't ask to be pigs. They didn't ask to be unclean. They're smelly, but, you know, goats and sheep are pretty smelly animals, too. And, and they're rarely clean unless you wash them. <laughs> So I think staying at the symbolic level is quite interesting. Now, are they upset? Are the shepherds? This is called the shepherds. Are the shepherds upset because the pigs are gone? Or are they upset because the people who used to be possessed with unclean spirits aren't anymore? That's a weird question. You, you must be thinking, that's crazy that you're asking that, except, particularly in Mark's gospel, when they see the demoniac dressed and in his right mind, um, they tell Jesus to leave. I 
maybe because they were much more comfortable with him living in the tombs and being crazy than they are having to live with him now. And there's something to be said about the reality of this, right? Because once somebody shows up on Megan's list, I mean, really, are you ever going to trust them again? You know what Megan's list is, right? That's the child sex offender list. You can get on that list when you're 18 and you have sex with a 17-year-old and tomorrow is her birthday or his birthday. You can be on that list and that mean, for the rest of your life. You can come off the list, right? But when you find out somebody's on the list, are you going to view them as more unclean than someone who isn't? Probably. I sure would. I've got a small child. I'm not taking risks. And then what redemption is there for that person? Aren't they consigned to live in the tombs that we've created for them? By the way, I'm not saying the easy thing is do away with the list. I'm not. I'm saying we create tombs for people every day. In the foster care system, the tomb goes like this. When a child gets a diagnosis of something weird, the foster parent gets more money to take care of the weirder kid, you see. So actually the financial incentive is to have your foster child be a bipolar schizophrenic with ADHD. And if you can get more levels than that, see, the stipend goes up, up, up. Now, there's plenty of foster parents, right, that aren't interested in the money, but just think about what we incentivize. You get a label like bipolar schizophrenia, how does that come off? Sometimes our categories that are meant to do so much good and provide services and help can be awfully dehumanizing, right? I'm not saying we do away with them all, right? We need sorting. But, but, but I think the story is about that a bit, you know? I have family members that grew up with family members coming to their house, and before they came, the mother would say, put away all your money, put away all your, you know, your valuables. Because it was really suspicious that the, the cousins would come and steal the things. Right? Because it had happened, you know. How do you get delivered from that one? And if you saw them dressed and in their right mind, would you believe that they were in their right mind? Or would you think they were scamming you again? We're comfortable with demoniacs because we know where to put them. When we're not sure that they're demoniacs, we have a really hard time knowing where to put them. Me included. Right? So now I want you to hear the story is, what are they more upset about? The loss of the pigs or that now they might have to live with these people that they had consigned to death? I frankly would be much more concerned about the latter the former one represents a temporary economic hiccup. An unfortunate one, but temporary. Again, you have to ask yourself, where would I be in the story? <laughs> Some of us might be the demoniacs. Some of us might even be Jesus. Some of us might just be the swine. <laughs> Ah, uh, yes, because, and, and we don't even know what kind of pigs these are. Are these ones that are going to be sacrificed to, to, to Zeus? Well, probably, because all animals that are killed are sacrificed in the name of a god, right? But um, these people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee are in that mixed group. These are what we'd call the Samaritan kind of people. They're, they're um, you know, Alexander came through at, at 333 and sort of was the most effective evangelist culturally in the history of the world, right? He imposed... Greek language and Greek culture and Greek custom that includes swine, you know. And actually, it's really, really quite reasonable because swine are much easier to grow than, than sheep or uh, goats because they're omnivores. And you don't even have to give them meat, but you could. You could give them nasty meat, you know. And there's this saying that, you know, uh, well, well, God told Jewish people not to eat pigs because if you undercook the meat, you could get really sick. Well, that's true of any meat, right? I mean, it's just crazy to think, to think that, right? Why do Jewish people not eat pigs? So they can be different from everybody else in the world. That's the rabbinic interpretation. 
I have a brother who's Orthodox, and he'll tell you, the easiest way to make a different group of people is to make food really difficult and different. He can't eat, I mean, he does. He defiles himself by eating at my house. Even if I serve him kosher food, my oven's not kosher. It ruins the food. You try accommodating that, I dare you. <laughs> a kosher one and a non. And, and he theoretically has two kitchens. One in which dairy goes and one in which meat goes. Yes, the, again, you talk about being a separate people, you start making food laws and you've got separate people. I mean, I tried to be a vegetarian for a couple years and I couldn't eat with any of my friends or my family members. Because every vegetable they cook, they put meat in. <laughs> collard greens are a lot better with bacon. I mean, we know that. So are Brussels sprouts. You know, when you have people over, and, and, and I don't mean like it's a big deal, but it's, in some ways it's a big deal. You try accommodating someone who's a vegetarian and gluten-free and a vegan. God help you, you know. And, and there's people who have celiac disease who can't eat the stuff, and that's really hard because it's not just a choice. I mean, they can't have it. And that's just doggone hard. Wow, look, I made it through chapter 8. This is good, right? This is good. Okay, all right, I'm going to speed through some other things. I just want to make some observations and see if you've observed these before. You know the story about the paralyzed guy and the friends who are carrying him? In Mark, you know, they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him, right? Not in Matthew, they just bring him by. But you know what's interesting is um, they bring the paralyzed man on a mat and Jesus says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. When Jesus saw whose faith? Oh, man. So you could be on the mat paralyzed and you don't have, any, have to have any faith at all and God can heal you through the faith of your friends? That's why we say we believe in the Apostles' Creed. And that's something. The church I grew up in said it was all about you and your faith, but um, this story says it's about your community and their faith in God and their faith in you. That's why we have a baptismal covenant, Right? We will do these things. We will renounce these things, not just for our own, but for the sake of other people. That's a powerful story, isn't it? Bring in your friends to Jesus, even if they don't want to go. And sometimes you can only get them there if they're paralyzed, because then they can't run away. <laughs> of course, the people get mad, right? Because Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, right? And Jesus has this great question to say. I mean, really, which one's easier to say? To a paralyzed person walk or your sins are forgiven? I mean, isn't he saying both of those things are impossible? So if I can do one impossible thing, why can't I do the other? Of course, you know, really what he's saying is people believed he was paralyzed because he'd earned it. And what he's saying is you didn't earn it, you deserve to be free and walking, and that's what happens. <sighs> that's strong, right? Because what he's doing is giving the person back to the community, not just saying, you can get up and walk, because still people would have thought, well, he deserved it, and now here's this lucky thing. He's saying there's nothing wrong with the man on the cot. <laughs> and I want you to know that. And he gets up to walk, you know? And sometimes I think this is a really interesting thing. Sometimes we worry and we, we, we move our hands, and I did this too, because, you know, we've got to be really careful when somebody comes into our parish that's blind, and we talk about blindness being a bad way to, to act spiritually. You know, we worry about these things, you know, for good reason. We don't want to be offensive. But at a certain point, you know, and this was this, this thing, this gift I got from Atlanta, you know, at a certain point, people just want to be treated as people, not as handicapped people. And often, I've noticed that handicapped people or marginalized people are much more comfortable with... with <laughs> some of those questionable labels than we are. So in Atlanta, if I called someone an African-American, it's because I was a devout racist. If I didn't call somebody black, it's because I was being politically correct in the worst possible way. So when I got to California and they said to me, have you seen that African-American gentleman? I thought, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're talking like this. It's a funny thing. It depends on where you are in the country, right? But Atlanta, 60% black. 
60% black. And me as a white person saying, ask them about being an African-American, you know, sent the worst possible message. I had to learn that one, you know, had to learn it. San Diego has like 3% black population, you know. So, so maybe that's the thing. In LA, it was similar. Calling somebody African-American in LA just wasn't gonna happen. I mean, it wasn't gonna be successful. I don't even know what it's like in Texas. I haven't figured it out. I'm still operating in my Atlanta brain because that's where I had my biggest conversion, you know? <sighs> Differently abled. I think the truth is, I don't know that anybody who's disabled wants to call, be called differently abled. I think they just want to be appreciated that they still have abilities and that they don't, it's not that they lack any, it's that they can't do the things that many other people are able to do. And the problem is, if somebody can't walk and we treat them like they're paralyzed, we've utterly degraded them. In the middle of making accommodations, what's at stake is somebody's dignity and their value in the community. I think. And I think that's part of what this story is about. I don't know if that's right. I, I'm suspicious, though, that people I know who have AIDS want to be treated as people first who have AIDS second instead of as AIDS people. Does, does that make sense? People who are blind instead of blind people. People who are deaf instead of deaf people. I think that's why he says sin instead of infirmity. I mean, I think so. That's all the time we have. Okay. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to a really long lecture.